All right, welcome. This is 52SC, the special guest episode, right? And uh, today you're gonna learn the differences between diving, the natural environment, and reefing, an artificial environment. Uh, more specifically, how you can use that information to advance your tank. And we got to welcome Joe Caparata here to uh, share his experiences with Thank us. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. All right. Uh, every fourth week of 52SC series, we're gonna bring in somebody like Joe here who has done it before. Four, uh, repeated successful tanks, farm scientists, biologists who have furthered their knowledge on caring for these animals. Joe, you fit that bill? I, I think I do. I <laughs> hope so. How long have you been doing this? <laughs> uh, 35 years now. Mm. Crazy. Started at 13 years old, working in a fish store every day after school, and I haven't stopped. I just literally have not, never stopped. 35 years counts for something. Uh, so welcome, Joe, uh, owner of uh, Mara uh, Manhattan Aquariums LFS uh, in uh, uh, New York. Yep. Uh, installer and maintenance, uh, high standards there. Uh, unique owner of uniquecorals.com, supporting farm for growing corals yep. out for yep. that facility. Uh, U.S. distributor Panaray, Pax Bellum, Triton, and, and also a partner with Mark over at Marco Rocks. Decades of working and being around all these animals. Okay, so uh, of all those experiences, what do you think applies the most to today? I think it's the aquarium installation aspect of New York City, um, running the, you know, like you said, the high standards. Um, we have very small footprints. We try to do magical stuff in small apartments where noise is an issue. You have 30 apartments below, so you cannot have any leaks. And just safe proofing aquariums and making them aesthetically pleasing for people, as well as doing our farming, which we've done since 2006 at Unique Corals. So the farming aspects blended with the installation um, I hope gives me the credibility to, to answer some of these questions. So also uh, the uh, diving, man. Yeah. You know, yeah. so you're a healthy, uh, go do a healthy amount of diving. You see the stuff in the wild and you yeah. bring back that application. It's a totally different thing. And, and no matter how many dives you go on, you it's almost like an epiphany every time. You're like, wow, this is what we're trying to recreate. Why are we doing it like this? Why are we using a little pump to create flow, which we'll get into, when you have these giant swells blowing corals back and forth. It's just super eye-opening, and I, I recommend anybody who wants to keep a successful marine aquarium to actually get out there and get wet, because that's what you're trying to replicate. The best scripts I've ever written uh, have been like on the beach. Ah. You know, go out, dive, yeah. see the animals uh, there, yeah. and then bring it back. And it's just like, oh man, you know. You're dialed in, you're grounded yeah, like, to oh, it. I forgot, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you forget the most basic things sometimes. You overlook them. All right, so you can hear these answers to these questions today, which is uh, first, uh, where do you see corals thriving in nature? Uh, maybe are there like different corals in different parts that you would find in nature? You're going to find, uh, does uh, flow really random in nature? We're going to answer that question. Uh, is it really 78 degrees in nature? What's a thermocline? Uh, also, what is, uh, how does the nature balance pests, predators, and aggression from conspecifics? Uh, what corals grow next to each other? And how often do we come across an actual mixed reef on a reef? Probably not all that often. Uh, what is marine snow and how can we use that knowledge in a reef tank? We answer all those questions today. Start with number one. Where do you see corals thriving in nature? So you go on a reef, you go diving, you see corals. Typically, you're going to see like corals together. So you might see a field of euphilia and then you swim over this balmy and all of a sudden you see giant 
plating, montipora, or acropora, and you start to realize that these corals have evolved to live in certain micro, micro environments on the reef. Very rarely do you see this whole mixed bed with a euphilia here and a blasto here and an acro there. I didn't see my first blastomusa. I was told if I want to see one, go diving on that rock wall. Once you hit 80, 90 feet on a vertical surface, that's where you'll see blasto. And why? Why don't we see blasto sitting next to the acroporo or the monte? Because we stick them in our aquariums like that. Well, they don't thrive in the wild. Another thing to keep in mind is as these corals are reproducing in the wild and they're floating through the water column and they're settling, they don't know where they're going to settle. So a blasto will settle on a reef and it might live for a year, six months, but over time it's not going to thrive and that's not going to be a habitat that's really inducive to the long-term survival of that coral. So naturally over time, you don't see a lot, you will see anomalies, but you're seeing really all of these corals where they do best typically. I don't think about it that way. Basically they're spawning, right? Yeah. And the eight little million coral babies go out and then they land wherever they land. Yeah. But the only ones you actually see are the ones that landed in an area that, you know, really serves the species yeah. well. Right? You will see them in spots that they don't typically do well, but you won't see a lot of them. And, you know, over time, you know, you might get a, a low tide and the blasto can't survive out of water, so that's going to kill it. Or you might get some crazy waves and it'll rip the flesh off it. That'll kill it. But the ones that are 80, 90 feet, deeper water, predictable flow, not as crazy, no bright UV light. That's a perfect little nursery for that blasto and, and the mechanisms that it's evolved to have to live in that environment. This is a perfect example because I think back to that video I watched of Than, you know, uh, like he's just like, these things like to live in the shade. Yeah. You know, like take your blasto and put it in an area that looks visually to you like it has no light. Yeah. Uh, that is where it's going to thrive. Well, one thing I, you know, we, we, we know Jake Adams here. Jake Adams had his reef builder studio at Unique Corals. I don't know if a lot of people know that, but when he packed up in Colorado, it was like 2015. And he said, he called me up and he said, Joe, I want a place to test all my really cool gear. Like, people keep sending me gear and I have no place to test it. I'm working out of my home. So he packed up. Subaru and he drove out to California and he set up shop at Uni Corals and he was there for two years and we got to play with everything. And one thing that I remember that he told me is Blastamusa, stick them on that rock wall and not a rock wall in an aquarium, but we took an egg crate and we created these vertical columns and we glued all the blastos because when the detritus settles on them, if it's too much, it could burn the blasto. You don't have enough flow to constantly take it off. So at this angle, it was perfect. They could still feed, they can grab marine snow or reef snow, and they thrived, they did great. So that's an application from the wild that we took in, uh, and applied to our, our reef query. So one of the things I think of too is like, think about like a, uh, like a torch coral or your you know, typical like flowy SPS or LPS coral, right? Big, huge polyps, you know? They've kind of adapted to an environment of lower light, you know, down deeper. Yeah. And part of the reason you know that is because it has this big, huge, fleshy polyp that if you brought that thing up to the surface, it'd just die. Yeah. You know, it cannot survive that turbulent that extreme uh, environment. You see it in our tanks. Yeah. Like they yeah. just don't survive well right. in that turbulent environment. Right. But this is a coral that can survive high light. Mm -hmm. You know, you can, you know, get these things to, you know, like be uh, acclimated to, you know, the same range as SPS tanks. Yeah. You know, yeah. I have them in my tank right now. Yeah. Uh, but you just can't have the same flow to it. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's not necessarily that this coral like only likes dark light. 
it may, there's probably areas where you can find these things fairly shallow if the flow is right yeah. as well. So that's another thing we tend to think of our aquariums as, you know, the deeper part of the, of the tank is like the deeper part of the ocean and the top part is like the top part. Of the, it's really not, you know, the difference in the ocean going from 30, 40, 50 feet down to 10 feet is so extreme. You know, it's, it's, you're not really replicating, even though our mind wants to feel like we're replicating it. You know, you might hit 800, 900 par on a reef at five feet underwater or something, you know, we're probably not going to do that to our torch coral. I mean, unless your light is right over it. Yeah, I mean, we were testing par and you're like out of the water, dude. You know, it's oh, it's like insane. 3, 000, yeah. Right. You know, one of the things I was like, I was looking at it, it's like, ah, you know what? It is 3,000. But if we look at the area that's like, you know, valuable, it's the blue area, which is like only a third of the whole yeah. thing. Uh, and just wiped out all the yellow yep. and green and stuff. Right. It's really only like a thousand of like per. Right? And that's, yeah, that's, that's high, high, high up. Yeah. Sure. And then so sure. you get down in the deeper the water, but like, man, it goes down pretty rapidly yeah. as you go and yep. all the violet gets filtered out and all the red, or not. A lot of the violet and all of the red gets filtered yep. out pretty rapidly. Yep, yep. And, and you just have the blue penetrating deep. So that, that's an important thing with all of these tanks that we're doing here is we're really thinking about where these corals thrive in nature. Mm -hmm. You know, so like I'm thinking this anemone tank here, you know, like what types and some of the ones we're looking at, you know, basically get exposed at you know, mm -hmm. low tide. Yeah. You know, they're going to see a lot of really, really high par. They're going to see a lot of red. They're going to see a lot of violet, yep. you know, like, yep. cause they're just, the yep. water doesn't filter it out. Yep. Uh, there's a ridge there cause they like to live on these ridges and it's not sharp, you know, it's just not going to cut them when they're Perfect. going around there. Yep. Right? Yep. And like, there's all of these tanks, you know, at some point where you're going to hear it consistently, this corals found at this depth. So we adjusted for this most commonly found. Sure. Uh, this guy, uh, coral is found in this environment, so we adjusted Muddy for that. Lagoon, you know, diving, I, I couldn't believe the trachophilia and the elegance corals in this kind of muddy, silty, you know, there's runoff, nutrients a little higher, there's a lot of minerals in the mud, and that's where these corals were, were thriving. So if you want to, you know, get a trachophilia, you touched upon something, the morphology tells a lot about the coral. If it's got a giant polyp, chances are it, it, it uses prey capture to get a lot of its nutrition. If it doesn't have a big polyp and it's got a big surface area like a disc, like a solar disc, well, it's probably trapping sunlight. But these corals, which have evolved in this desert-like environment, are feeding 24-7. It's just during the day they're using the sun's energy to produce their the sugars through photosynthesis. And then at night they turn to prey capture. When there's no sunlight, well, why sit there for 12 hours? I mean, I, they got rent to pay, so they open up their, uh, their, their polyps and they capture whatever's in the water column. I got rent to pay. So think about that. I, I think one of the coolest things you can actually do is when you're thinking about a coral that you want to do, yeah. uh, go to Google and search for either images or even better video of that coral in nature. And you'll see it living yep. in its own environment. It's like, ah, that's what it likes yeah. to do. Yeah. How can I recreate that? Don't overlook it. It's staring you right in the face. Literally, the mm -hmm. answers that... We tend to think of most of the solutions as exotic, but oftentimes they're so simple and they're right literally on a Google screen. Yeah, especially you, you uh, like you think of it, I have to dive, you know, which is a you know, barrier. You know, that's yeah. an expensive trip to go do this. Uh, and and it's have, uncomfortable yeah. for a lot of people. It's cold, it's waves, it's, it's, it's pretty yeah, intense. Or learn how to do it, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Uh, but I could just do it on Google. Uh, okay, but <laughs> notice the difference though of that, you know, versus, you know, in an aquarium. You know, like, and you see lots of pictures of these things in the aquarium. What you usually see, though, is the same kind of thing. Like, you don't necessarily see 
the best ways. You just see like what didn't die. Mm, that's know? true. And it's not real obvious either in the tank sometimes because a lot of times like really cool photos, they actually take all the pumps and stuff mm, out of them, mm -hmm. you know, because- Especially with fresh water. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, they, they pull everything out, still water, they shoot, they even put the fish in just for the photo shoot. I've seen lots of tanks where they're like super, super immaculate uh, SPS tanks and stuff. And then what they do is before the shoot, they pull all the pumps out because nobody wants to see all those cords in this mm. beautiful image. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which, cheating a little. Well, not only is it cheating, but it's giving like a misconception yeah. of how you actually support the biology. In sure. Scent. Like, sure. And then they put them all back in. And it just looks like a rat's yeah. nest. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. So it's, it's fun. Well, that's where, bit. you know, the, the designing aquariums and trying to really hit that, uh, that aesthetic standard uh, is so important. And, you know, the gear that we had even 10 years ago or 15 years ago, I mean, when I started, if I wanted high powered lights, I had to build my own canopy. And I used to, I'd make it out of wood, wrap it with aluminum foil, go get the fixtures and use, at that time we had fluorescent bulbs. We had Triton bulbs, coincidentally, uh, which made meat look good in deli counters. And those are the bulbs that we put on our aquariums to make things look good. We had the Philips 03 bulb. You know, if you go back to the late 80s, that was our blue, but everything was standard fluorescent. Um, you wanted a wet dry, you had to make it. You know, you wanted to hang on, you took a Super King and you put the, uh, yeah, it was like, we didn't have these pre-drilled tanks. The word that comes to me, man, is like pioneer. I yeah. mean, you're using tools in a world that like, this is, I understand hasn't even developed yet. Yeah. I'm using meat counters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, next question here is, uh, this kind of flows into this actually, is flow really random in nature? Because in our reef tanks, we're always looking for like random flow or turbulent flow yeah. or yeah. whatever. Is it really random in nature? So, yes and no. Um, you have your flow on a reef, you have tides, right? So you have the flow coming in, and I, I credit this to, to Matthias. Matthias, the owner of Panther, I really opened my eyes to this. You know, here we are replicating random flows, but it's really far from random. Sure, one coral is gonna get pulses of water here and there, which is somewhat random, but the general direction of flow is six hours in, then a slack, and then six hours out. And certainly different reefs are exposed to different pressures of waves, like, you know, depending on the channeling, it's gonna move faster as the, as the tide is coming in, and then it's gonna move you know, faster as it comes out. But now we can replicate that, is my point. These corals have evolved to, to be in an environment where the water's going in, and then it changes direction. It really does. So the detritus that settled might blow off in this direction, but then you can't get it unless the flow changes. And we've got capabilities now in a lot of these pumps to recreate these, flytal, these, these tidal surges, these tidal flow patterns by using multiple pumps, spinning the water one way, slowing it down, then spinning it the other way. You can actually have higher velocity at the surface using smaller, more pumps at the top, and on the bottom having more gentle flow to replicate the different flow patterns on, on the reef. So this is so funny because, you know, back in my day, I was like a, a little after you, uh, everybody was using like maxi jets and then yeah. LT was like, you know, if you were rich, you had a tunes, you know, yeah, and then yeah. uh, after that, it was like the little maxi jet mods and stuff like that, you know, and then you get a lot of flow in there. But like nobody had these fancy like reef crests and random flows sure. and all this other stuff. But the way that it was taught to me to do it was basically what you just described like on a different scale, but you know, it was 
you know, turn the right maxi jet mod, which is, you know, like now it's like 2000 gallon an hour pump, which was at the time to me, it was like unfathomable because I had a maxi jet before it was 200, you know? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I turned that on for 20 minutes. And so I would just flow for 20 minutes that way. And I would just use a digital timer to do this. And then uh, when this turned uh, off, uh, uh, 20 minutes, this one would turn off and then this one would turn on and they would go 20 minutes the other direction. And then at the end of that 20 minutes, both turn on and create a turbulent 20 yeah, minutes. Yeah. So you're creating this gyrus, of, uh, like a current, and then you're creating the alternating current, and then you create turbulence, but in like 20 minute pulses, not in like, you know, whatever is random. Ramping up six hours or, oh, or chaotic. Yeah. 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 Okay. And then like, it worked really, really well for me. Yeah. Uh, I, have zero problems for that it just it worked really and now i apply that to a lot of the tanks mm -hmm. here it doesn't matter if i'm using a gyre or vortec mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. whatever pump uh, tunes or anything like i'm looking for the longest pulse i can find in these things in most cases yeah, yeah. I, I want it to create a current and it takes a while for the water to really start does, moving yeah. you know yep in a direction like it ain't a 30 second pulse right you know, this is like a five minute thing yep you know and then let it stop Yep. But in your case, where you're really talking about like, man, we could go hours. You could. I mean, if you want to replicate nature, which it sounds like we're all trying to do, and that's this topic is recreating the, the lighting parameters, the feeding requirements of these specific animals, um, and, and the flow. You cannot overlook the flow. I mean, we talk about chemicals and microdosing and checking your trace elements and you know adding the proper supplements. I think flow is something that needs probably a little bit more attention if we want to really take it up the notch. Okay, so this is one of those things where like people, you know, debate, you know, do you emulate nature? Do you emulate a successful career? Well, that's why there's no right or really wrong way. And there's plenty of examples where someone has just random, where they don't even have the 20 minutes and the corals look amazing. And that is a testament to the coral's ability to thrive and adapt to environments. I will say though, like if you look at those tanks where people didn't put a lot of thought into it and you just kind of get lucky in the end. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the beginning, uh, you at the end, you'll say, ah, oh, awesome. But if you look at the beginning, you'll notice, you know what, man, there's twice as many frags in there as there is here. <laughs> so it's really just the things that survived. Right. You know, right, it does look right, cool, right, man, but like right. half of everything died. Is that yeah. really the mission? Yeah. No. So if you think about it though, this is why I, I, I want to push us a little bit, like understand the biology in, in this series and you know, all the videos that we're creating is all right, well, you know, a lot of these surface dwelling corals, the corals that are like closer to the surface, I mean, they're exposed to a lot of turbulence. Yep. And it's different kinds of turbulence. I mean, I see a lot when I go out snorkeling, you'll see, you know, closer to the shore where the lot, some of these corals are, is you'll see the tide come in, you know, not that it's necessarily the tide, but like the waves will bring all the water up onto the shore, you know, and it, just pushing it up until and you can see the current you can watch the corals mm -hmm. and all the detritus and like you know reef snow and stuff go in one direction and then eventually the weight of all that water gets too much to fight the in, uh, incoming pressure of the waves and all of a sudden it starts coming back and you can see all the turbulence and it's not mm -hmm. like a thing that lasts 10 seconds you know mm -hmm. you can see all this turbulence for a period of time but eventually the weight wins and the direction changes mm -hmm. and goes back out to sea and sometimes if there's you know, areas in the reef where it can shoot out, that's where you get like your, uh, you know, like dangerous currents and yeah, stuff. Yeah, rip riptides and whatnot. Yeah, but you can watch all of this stuff happen and then pay attention to the corals that thrive in this area 
and then also pay attention to the corals that would never thrive mm -hmm. in that area mm -hmm. that don't aren't exposed to that because they're way 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 yeah. deeper yeah. and changing currents that happen over hours not yeah. minutes right you know yeah most of the reef crests are are exposed to those tidal surges unfortunately a lot of areas that are traffic by a lot of snorkelers and divers have been trampled on. So, you know, you, you got to find your locations to really observe corals. Well, we're not going to get negative on this one, but some of the dive sites have been on. It's so evident that, you know, well, there's a little public service announcement. Don't step on the corals. <laughs> if you're going to go diving, those I've seen people, they don't know how to maintain neutral buoyancy. So they're just waiting bottom out. And every time they bottom out, they're just breaking corals, slamming coral. Oh, it's the nature so of the beast yep. of snorkeling. Yep. But like with the flow is think for me, you know, like I'm thinking about this anyway. I am spending more time lately thinking about how do I create strong currents than how do I create random flow? Yeah. Are, are you guys doing that? Uh, we're, we're hyper aware. Well, we have the tools now to create very strong current and the corals are thriving. I have so many people that say, oh my God, since I put this pump on, since I cranked up the flow, the growth is so much more. You know, you're delivering water and water is, is the life that the corals need. You know, you're bringing nutrients to them. You're flushing out um, oxygen that the algae is producing, you know, especially on the bright lights. If you don't have enough flow in there, corals can't get rid of that oxygen that the zooxanthellae are producing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, high light, high flow. So that's one of the things I found, you know, with uh, in a mixed tank where I want to put, you know, torches and stuff that you know, like do not belong where I'm putting them. Yeah. You know, because it's sitting right next to an acro almost. Yeah. Uh, I got to put like a lot more thought into the flow because that animal has got a lot of tissue, a lot of zooxanthellae. Sure. It's sure. producing a lot of those excess oxidants yeah. yep. and it is not good for it. It will show you pretty rapidly. So I got to get enough flow to it to help it get rid of yep, that, yep. but not so much, man, that I harm the actual polyp right, tissue. Right. You know, so I, it's hard. You have to really think about it. That's the nature of like, when you think about these mixed tanks is what I'm really trying to do is take this, you know, thing that's like does not want to live here. Right. Never would have populated this space, uh, but I put it there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right next you to this thing it. that is very different than the next Right. One. And the interesting part is we do it with all the LPS corals. We bring them up there and just assume. But you would never like take an SPS coral, like an acro, and like put it in 50 par and assume yeah. it's going to be okay. Right. Right. You'd never go the other direction. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Very interesting. So flow uh, random in nature. Not really, more systematic. Yeah, I think if you observe it, you'll see that it is more systematic. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You can make it systematic in your tank as yep. well. Uh, do it intelligently. Think about the animal's needs. Watch it in, in, you know, in a video. And, uh, and you want gentle but strong. You, know, you want like laminar flow. You don't want a, a garden hose piercing at the coral. When I've dove on mariculture farms where you do have euphilia in 30 feet of water, you know, those corals are, are in serious current but it's somewhat gentle. So they're able to bend and then they're able to bend the other way. It's not like someone just turns on a garden hose and rips the flesh right off. It's just like so good. Yeah, right. You can really watch it. Like you can watch it, it turns this way yeah. and you can watch the water just rushing over its surface. The coral. But it's not doing it in a way that's damaging it. Exactly, yep, yeah. sure. All right, cool. Next thing here is, <laughs> this is an interesting one. Is it really 78 degrees in nature? Because we're all told to do 78 degrees in our tanks. Uh, and what is a thermocline? Ah, uh, right. So 78 degrees is 
a good temperature to shoot for. It's a nice average temperature on a healthy reef. But in reality, no, I mean, the, the temperatures, I mean, we looked in the Solomon Islands, the coolest it ever hits in the coolest months is like 83. Well, those corals are sitting at 85, 86 degrees. Now I'm not saying to replicate that at all. 78 is a safe number, but is it worrisome if all of a sudden your tank at 76 or your significant other blasted the AC because he or she was cold and now the tank at 74? Chances are the tank will be just fine. Thermoclines, when you dive, it is so evident that, oh, it's nice and warm here. And then suddenly you go down two feet or five feet, whatever, and it feels instantly colder, five, six, seven degrees. You've got these natural temperature barriers where the cooler water is meeting the warmer water. And it creates this, this, this thermocline, this barrier. And as soon as you break it, it is so obvious. And these thermoclines are naturally moving up and down on the reef. And you've got, you know, cold weather and rainy, cold uh, days and the, the corals can adapt. They can go 70 all the way up to 80. So it's like, uh, I was talking to Than about this and he shared an interesting you know, thing I didn't think about. And we all know that like the light, you know, takes out uh, or the water filters out the red. But what it really is, is like the infrared light, mm. which is heating up the surface water. Right. Mm. But it, by the time you get down more than a handful of feet, man, there's no red light left heating it up. And there's also like all that turbulence has happened. It's not getting down, you know, mixing with the uh, currents that are lower. And so you get those areas. I mean, you can go diving and like feel it like where your head is warm and your feet are cold. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 For sure. So how does it apply to a reef tank? You know, from my experience, as long as it's not happening like really, really fast, yep. you know, going cold, I've never seen like a real negative. Effect. Well, we import corals and a lot of times those corals are coming in at 62 degrees, 64. And those are some of the best shipments when the corals are actually, I take that back, 65, 68, the corals are doing fine. Their needs are less, they're almost in like a suspended state. If the water should hit 85 during a transit, uh, during a shipment, a lot of, you know, the, the mortality is going to be higher. Though, so for those, you know, like it's thermal energy. So at lower yep. temperatures, all everything's moving slower. Yep. Everything's colliding slower. Yep. The chances for things that go wrong are just lower. Their needs are less. Oxygen yeah. demands are less. Yeah. Everything is just less. Yeah. You know, there's a reason like, uh, you know, if you fell through the ice, you know, you, you can actually survive for quite a while. Like they can revive you because everything just slowed down your yeah. body, yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, same thing with uh, the opposite direction, though. If you get too hot, all of a sudden everything's colliding, thermal energy is going really fast, and all the biology is really fast, and things are going to go wrong really fast. Very quickly. Yep. So I see this in reef tanks all the time, where, you know, like we always tell people keep it around 78. I'm concerned if it's hitting 81 and stuff. Does that mean like everything's going to kick the bucket at 81? Nope. So th there's another theory too. Like if you, if you have really stable environment, very stable, your, your animals might, it's, this is anecdotal, will, will possess less of an ability to actually cope with change when it does happen. Mm -hmm. So maybe it is more beneficial to let the tank swing a little bit, you know, 76 to 79. I'm also sensitive. I run two stores in New York City and, and my store in, in uh, Unique Corals. We try to take advantage of the different seasons. So in the winter, when it costs a lot of money to heat up our store, we run the tanks at 74, 75. In the summer, what costs a lot of money to cool things, we run at 78, 79. So that five degree difference saves us hundreds and hundreds of dollars every month. You could do the same with your aquariums. You know, if you're paying money to heat up the room, maybe your tank can, can run a little, uh, a little cooler. There's a little bit of unknown biology here. Like I would assume that if you ran it at 74, 
you know, things would just grow slower. Yes, that is true. Right? Just that the biology is, is happening slower. Uh, but like how much? But you is that really also know. our goal is to yeah. just grow corals fast? Is that really the only benchmark of reef keeping? Is that the measuring stick for success? Hey, by the way, all the bad things grow slower too. Yeah. Uh, so the dinos What's, and diatoms and stuff. But you gotta do more maintenance. You gotta cut more coral. I mean, unless yeah. you're making money from it, maybe we don't need them to grow so fast. Okay, so one of the points that you made though here is like you can go, was it the Solomon Islands? You're saying there's like 83 or something, yeah. right? Yeah, 83, 86. Okay, yep. so that could lead you to believe like, oh, well, you know, who cares if my tank's 83? This goes back to the previous conversation of the corals that you would find there are the ones that settled and survived. Yeah. The ones that didn't aren't there. Yeah. And in our tanks, we're not creating just Solomon Island ta uh, tanks, man. We're taking corals that grow sure. all over the place and, you know, evolve to different needs. Yeah. And, you know, I think in many cases we probably are doing that and like, you see so many really successful tanks that are like kind of like the Solomon Islands. It's like, this is just what happened to survive yep. my tank. Yep. You know? yep. And so I think that's that 78 is like, hey man, we're gonna be right here because yep. we know this to be a pretty safe area. Sure. It's like the average of the ocean. Absolutely, yep. It's very unlikely it's gonna be too cold to kill anything and yep. probably unlikely for a vast majority it's yep. gonna be too hot to kill anything yep. either. Yep. I like the 76, 77. It gives you a few more degrees cushion should there be you know, an issue. Uh, a lot of farmers like to run at 79, 80 even, because as you pointed out, it speeds up metabolism and the corals will grow and like, you know, calcify quicker. Everything is just faster. But at 80, if you, if you go five degrees too hot, now you're at 85. Now you're in so, somewhat of a lethal zone. So this is one of those things too. Like I watched a video from Dana Riddle, it was like turbocharging growth. And he was talking about a variety of different things, but like Part of it is, is like you can't just like put more fuel into an engine. You actually have to put more air into yeah. it, right? Yeah. Because uh, if you turbocharge any piece of this thing, it's just it, it's going to unbalance it all. Sure. So for your instance of like, hey, I want to like say I wanted a farm and I wanted to grow them faster and I wanted to like run it at eighty degrees, all of a sudden now flow and gas exchange just became way more important yep. because. I have now increased the metabolism of that animal. It's creating more oxygen. It's, you know, it needs more carbon dioxide from the surrounding water. It needs everything. Like yep. all these things are just happening way, way, way faster. And we need to replenish them faster as well. If we don't, you know, this is where things, biology goes bad. You're running an bleaching. engine at closer to red line. You know, it's a lot easier to blow it up if you're, if you're kind of maxing it out. Well, that's one of the things too. People like you know try to get to like alkalinity or stuff. Like, should it be thirteen? Should yeah. it be eight? I can tell you, thirteen's been to grow twice as fast. Like I, I've, everything I've seen. Uh, if you grow, if you had like a thirteen alkalinity and a pH of eight point three, you're gonna fill out your tank three times as fast as the guy that runs at uh, yeah. seven dKH and seven point eight. Maybe yeah. even more than three times fast. But man, are you riding the razor's edge? And your yep. testing better be good. Everything better be great. Yep. Yep, yep. When you remove that limiting factor, I remember back in the day we were all running at 12, 13, 14. Yep, that, that, those are the numbers. There's no question. Yeah. Uh, yep. It just it just calcifies faster. Yep. We have increased the amount of carbonate that's available, and that yep. was the scarcity. Yep, it's so, also buffering pH more. Yep. Yep. And the yep. pH, I can get rid of the acidity that cause you know allows yep. these things to you know yep. uh, combine. Yep. Yeah. So temperature, this is an interesting one. We use 78 as a baseline. And if you had caught me in like, I think even probably 52 weeks of reefing number one, I would have said stability meant 
you know, hitting 78 and like, let's never vary more than a 10th of a degree. Well, so and there is, is, is a lot of um, support for that argument. You know, corals have X amount of energy per day. Now they can spend that energy to adapting to micro changes in their environment, or they can grow. You know, and a lot of this is indicative by your mineral consumption. So I would theorize that if you did allow your temperature to go up and down every day, your consumption would be a little bit less. You know, that's kind of a, a metric or a tool to see how fast corals are growing, how much are they actually pulling out of the, of the ion bank, how much calcium alkalinity. When things are really dialed in and things are growing, consumption goes up. You got to dial that doser up just to maintain a stable alkalinity and calcium. Oh, wow, I got to add 20 clicks, you know, 20 points to my doser. Um, so any changes to that environment are probably taking away pressures and energy that could go to growth. But is that our goal? That's why I really want, you know. That's a great point, because like I use this that same methodology all the time, right? So like say you're like, okay, I heard the tenth of degree thing, we were doing that. Like now a lot of these heaters actually have a two degree swing on them. Sure. So they're right? not on and off, they last longer. Yeah, it's yeah. going all the way down to like, you know, seventy six before it kicks back up yeah. to seventy eight, right? Yeah. And it lasts way longer. Okay, uh, if you let it swing that way, you know, you like heard this message, decided I want my gear to last longer, might be a little bit more efficient, you know, variety of different reasons. Yeah. Okay, so if you went and did that, pay attention to your alkalinity consumption. You have a stable dose right now that's working. Like if all of a sudden you change it to that, and then all of a sudden the alkalinity of your tank starts to rise, it means the corals aren't taking up as much as they used to be, uh, which is bad news. You yeah. just harm the biology, yeah. right? Yeah, and you know your tank better than anyone, and no two tanks are the same. So what applies here might not apply there. And you have unique variables that are hard to control for in this crude experiment. But if you're seeing super stability and you are on top of your tank and you're intimate with it, and you see that just fluctuating your temperature or turning the temperature up a little bit, yields you know a drop in your alkalinity and you got to turn up your consumption or on your doses then it's it's fair to say that it's probably was the temperature going up or down that that caused that alkalinity change inverse if you just heard the only thing you heard in here was uh hey, if i went to 80 degrees my corals are going to grow faster yeah. <laughs> okay uh, if you did that go and change it to, to 80 degrees and if your alkalinity in your tank starts to drop it means that the tank is consuming calcium and alkalinity faster than it used to. It's more rapid biology, more growth, and you're hitting the thing that you were thinking about. But at the same time, man, go add 20% more flow. Yeah. Like put more thought into the flow because you just increased biology. Yep. Yeah, it's all got to go lockstep. I remember on our, our coral farms, we were running 12,000 gallons. They're 30 foot raceways, 2,000 gallons each at the former Unique Corals facility. And we ran T5 bulbs mixed with halides. And every, you know, they say every six to 10 months change your, your, your T5 bulbs. And we would do that. And instantly we would have to turn our dosers up 20, 30% because all that new light energy from a brand new bulb, same photo period, same spectrum, same brand, but our alkalinity would now drop with the same dosing. The only difference was that we had brand new bulbs. So the corals had more energy. More photons coming out of those bulbs, you know. I'm growing more. You know, splitting more of the uh, carbon dioxide and water apart to create glucose. More glucose, more energy for growth, more energy for growth, more calcification. More bone material. Yeah, yep. this yep. is that simple. Related. And I saw it, it happen here too, in the exact same way, the 160. We just added like two hours to the photo period, and Alkalinity boom, 20% required yeah. dose had to yeah. go into it. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. We had similar things these. with pH. Cool. Cool. All right. Next one here was, uh, this one's interesting too. So in nature, how does nature balance pests, predators, and aggression come from conspecifics? So all the uglies and all of uh, the predators and all the different tangs and everybody lives in the ocean just fine. How does that happen? We have enough time to answer this one? Yeah. <laughs> this is a big one now. Um, the, I think the answer is that nature doesn't have all the answers, but it sure is trying. Um, and what we can learn from nature is if there's a problem, there has to be a natural solution because there's nobody on the reef. Well, now there is and biologists and trying to you know, play the hand of God a little bit. But um, natural solutions, natural pests. And, and I love what you've done in your previous work where you've demonstrated that. Maybe embrace the uglies. Maybe embrace the fact that we're never going to get all the pests and all the things we want. And is that a natural reef? Maybe there is a natural remedy that we could embrace that's really cool looking to eat some of these, these things. But getting back to the, the core question is how does it uh, balance on a natural reef? Well, there's a natural balance that occurs over time. Um, you know, highly territorial fish have space to defend their territory. They don't always have to engage in, in, in damaging battles. In an aquarium, we're forcing them to fight because they can't escape each other. So I would put one territorial fish in a tank. In nature, you can have multiples or create multiple hiding spots. You know, just simply having three different rock bombies would allow different groups of clowns to recognize this is my home. This is your home and this is your home. If you have one rock structure, well, one pair of clowns are gonna say, well, this is my home. I don't know where your home is, so I'm just gonna keep beating you into the corner. So, you know, there are things that we can do in our aquariums to replicate that, that we see in nature, but on the small scale that is our, our aquariums. Yeah, I, I see that definitely from the aggression standpoint. Like in nature, dude, if there's two tangs don't like each other, well, one of them's just out of here. Yeah. Never see each other again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and also how you add them, you know, getting the, the smaller tang first and then adding the larger tang second also helps. There's a lot of tricks. Some people use the mirror technique. When I've added tangs to client tanks because I had to have them, we'll take a mirror and stick it on the side of the tank. So let's say you had a nasty yellow tang in there and then you go in and add a purple, which they love to fight. You put a mirror attached to the side of the tank and that yellow tank, every time he sees his reflection, he's attracted to that and he winds up leaving the purple tang alone. The other is the, um, maybe we're getting off topic a little bit, mm. I feel like it's useful, uh, is putting the clear acrylic uh, viewing cell inside the tank. And the fish are forced to get, to get used to each other. Because these fish are, you know, they, they, they have a surrounding, they have a comfort zone. And any change to that, they have to react to. So if you give them time, a proper way to react to new, new things in their environment, they're kind of forced to adapt and, and in the best scenarios, be okay with it. Okay, so, I mean, you're preaching the choir here because yeah. this, if, if you only heard one thing here, man, today, let it be this one because this could save more animals than probably almost anything else. It's how you introduce these fish because in the wild, they were just jettisoned. They would sure. leave, right? Yeah. But in the tank, when I put those conspecifics in there, they'd like, like the same food, look like each other, you know, whatever. Okay, number one, on my uh, 360 in my office, I have those things. I have a, a mirror that has oh, okay. a, like a Toons magnet cleaner yeah, on it, yeah. right? And yeah. for this, just this purpose alone. Okay. So you can just stick it right to the yeah. uh, the glass. But the first thing we do is I now use this, uh, uh, it's not an acclimation box. Uh, maybe it's that. I, I, but like it, anemone box or yeah. something. It's, well, I built my own, you know, okay. but it's a, it's a, 
it's not acclimation, man, per se. It's a, I'm thinking space in the word, but anyway, it's a, a plastic Quarantine. box that goes inside the tank, right? Okay. Put the fish in there and the fish just lives in there for the next three weeks, you know? Yeah. And it like, it'll look small to you, but it's just fine, yeah. you know? Yeah. And the other fish will come and see it and you know, whatever. Nine times out of 10, after three weeks, you let it out. They never even, like, yeah. just like a breeze. Nobody cares. Yeah. Whereas if I just put it in there, man, they were going to chase Shred it around. It. Okay, this is a fish that used to live in the wild a week ago, right? Or maybe two weeks ago. It used to swim around the ocean. Now it's been through all kinds of crazy transport. It's been through like FedEx, man, or UPS. The chain of custody is insane. The lack of food. And then yep. I just like threw it in my tank and let these other guys bully it. Yeah. This is like bad outcome. Yeah. You know, yeah. you see lots and lots of mortalities from yeah. that, right? Yeah. Okay. If the only thing you did is just like go get this plastic box, you can, I mean, I'm building them from Home Depot. You just go to, they have sheets of acrylic there, build yeah. it, super glue it. Everybody will tell you that you need to use fancy glue for Yeah, uh, You don't acrylic. care if the joints don't look pretty. Yeah, I don't care if the joints yeah. look pretty. It doesn't need to hold water, it's submerged in water. Yep. Yep. I just need like, just, just glue it together and put yep. it in there, you know? Yep. Now it lives in this thing, it'll be just fine. And then one exception to that is if it's something like I know full well is probably going to go bad, like, you know, adding an Achilles to another Achilles. Well, if I go and I put uh, uh, that mirror on the tank before I let it go, the other one go, he's way more concerned about the mirror because it yep. looks identical to him. It's the yep. same size, yep. everything. This, it, it goes so much better. This problem is just eradicated. Yeah. If only everybody knew, yeah. and if only somebody would sell these damn things. Yeah. <laughs> because they're all too small. The ones that you see, these acclimation boxes, uh, they're just too small, yeah. you know, like for uh, the purposes of most yeah. fish. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I wish somebody would build like kits. You could put like on little corners, you know, yeah. and I could just I mean, go get it, snap it, and, and put it together. Now you got me thinking how you can incorporate that into the design of an aquarium. You know, some kind of slide thing in the corner of it be. that's clear. Yeah. So, you know, for the first six months, you're using this clear divider in one corner. And then when you're done, the whole thing comes out. And it's got clips on it. You and me. There you go. All yeah. right, we'll do it. Okay. All right. So, uh, also, though, beyond that is the pests and stuff. Now, this is a very unpopular opinion. I'm going to say it anyway because I don't care. All right. <laughs> so... Uh, and I've, I've wavered. If you've been with me for 15 years, you've seen various versions of this. And yeah. like, okay. And part of it is out of like fear, but you know, pests, acrete and flatworms, nudibranchs, uh, Monty nudibranchs, uh, little red bugs yeah. and all this stuff. They like, back in the day, if you saw one little bug, like it was time to like, almost like restart your tank. We got one acro, man, it was like, Man, now you're gonna like take all your corals out, like acrid and flatworm, and start all over. Blah blah. blah. Okay, I don't know, man. The 160 had acrid and flatworm. It had all of them, man. Uh, just fine. Yeah. Man, well, I, like it was I, not a big I, deal. Yeah, I draw the line at the acrid and flatworms. That that to me, I, I've seen enough. I see man hours dealing with maintaining and and dealing with where. It, that's one pest that if you could really eliminate that one in there, you could deal with a lot of them in, in, in organic or natural ways, but they really slow growth. They really stress corals. Um, so here is the, the middle ground for me though on this question. Like, do I want to put effort into not introducing those things? 100%. Yeah. Like, there's no question. Yeah, this Never is an me excuse to be okay and let your guard down. No, right? no, no, no. Right. But if one day I find out they're in there, yeah. Like just 
my methods just didn't work or whatever, yeah. or whatever happened. And throw the happened. tank right in the it garbage. It happens all the time. <laughs> I now have an option of I'm going to remove every last shred of acro material out yeah. of there and go through some crazy system of trying to kill them all off, you know, and, you know, making sure that they never find their way back in there, which probably has low success rates for anybody doing that for the first time. You know, and actually Fair. has to have a system capable of supporting these Fair. animals. Yep. Another one, right? Yep. Or, like, I just accept that they're in there. I'm going to go get a handful of wrasses that eat these things, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and then every two weeks, I'm going to take my maxi jet or PMUP or whatever it is, and I'm just going to go blow them all off. Yeah. Right? And as soon as they go in the water, the little wrasses will eat them all. And then, you know, this is, I'm going to go called overwhelmingly anecdotal, but like, the KZ stuff, that uh, uh, flatworm stop and the coral booster combo. Like, I don't know, nobody seems to really know how it works. It, it works. Like, it, 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 it makes their tissues thicker and just gives them some kind of immuno boost. I don't know, because it is purely anecdotal, but the corals just seem to have thicker tissue to resist them a little bit more. It just, they just look thicker. You know, like when corals get under attack, they look really thin and bony and they're on death's doorstep. Well, when you dose that stuff, which we do, it just seems to revive their tissues and, and makes them a little bit more. I've heard this from resistant. so many fish store owners yeah. now that like once they use it, they, they don't really care if you even have acro yeah. eating flatworms. I just want the tissue to look like that. Yeah, yeah. After you that. just start using it proactively. Yeah. 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 And so the combination of that, like, let's make. I, I've also heard that it makes the tissue unpalatable because it's like a, a bitterant, or could it be because it's thicker and harder to chew? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It could know be that just one. that it's growing the tissue faster than they eat it. I, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know. know who's eating these tissues to saying this one doesn't taste good in this tissue. <laughs> these are all theories that yeah, people are just yeah, like yeah. throwing in the universe. You know, I, I don't have no idea. Yeah. But it definitely works. Like, I, I should say this. Because I don't know how it works, it's hard for me to say that statement. But, like, if my, you know, grandma came and asked me, man, you know, like, what did I do about it? I would recommend this to her, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I don't know. I'll do this because it works tools, for me and yeah. everybody I trust. And what know? public aquariums do is they use fresh water and they'll put it on a garden hose like RO or regular fresh. And that osmotic uh, pressure just makes the flatworms release their grip way easier. So what you could do is, you know, depending on the system size, you could take a quarter inch, you know, uh, RO hose, put it in a bucket with a maxi jet or a pump and use that surgically because I think a blast of RO water would make them release way quicker than just, you know, salt water. Okay, so both on the 750 and the 160, both had acroid and flatworms. And as long as we had the RAS in there and we dosed the stuff, and then every two weeks or so, just grab a pump and blow them off, and, not a problem. And, and you've seen these reviews coming out how there's a species of camel shrimp from Australia that targets the eggs of the aquarium flower. Oh, no way. Yeah, so these, these camel shrimp, which we avoid for whatever reason, because we just, I mean, we just, we're not into camel shrimp, but these go down and they eat the eggs and people are swearing that it's eradicating their issues. Then you got the adults being eaten through this treatment of freshwater blasting and ras consumption, and then the eggs getting taken care of by the camel shrimp. Okay, I think of the same things. Like, I would never, ever in a million years put that uh, Aptasia eat, eaten file fish in there because that thing is ugly. Yeah. Uh, but man, the right one. Oh, they just decimate your anemones. Decimate it. Uh, yeah. Oh, like, I'm not, yeah, they just, like, they're not even there. They're no problem. Yeah. And tanks that are just like, oh, you're talking about full. anemones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Uh, and so, I, like, it is, like, I would put that fish in there 
especially like in an LPS tank where you're very likely to introduce yeah. these things yeah. uh, just because they grow in the base of it and yeah. stuff, or even like zoanthid tanks and stuff like that. I just put it in there proactively so I never see one. Yeah. 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 I mean, sometimes, you know, they can develop a taste for similar corals, you know, papales or, or zoanthids. Rarely, but we, we have encountered that once they develop a taste for it, it's like the old saying, you know, once, a, once an alligator or a crocodile develops a taste for a person, they got to hunt and kill that one. <laughs> the crude example, but... You know, you got to pull that one out. But I would say you take the chance because on the flip side, you know, you, you don't want your tank overrun with them. Of course. And it's it's so easy eating, to catch. If it starts eating, like, uh, the easiest thing in the yeah, world. Yeah. Of course, if it starts eating the coral, take that one out and get Obviously. a different one. Yeah. Uh, but right. uh, that's pretty simple. Right. Right. Yeah. right. Uh, okay. All right. The next thing here is, uh, well, I want to just hit one second real quick. On those pests, I do think you should do everything you can do to get them out of there. I think we should advance our dipping methods because I, I think there's better ways to go about it. One of the ways I just keep hearing out of me is peroxide. This like all, not all, but a lot, a lot of the farms and wholesalers use a lot of peroxide. Yeah. Home users just don't. Yeah. You know, well, it's it, it doesn't come in a fancy bottle. So we, we tend to select for the things that look like they're purpose built for our, our mm -hmm. trade. Um, one thing that goes a long way is when you're buying corals, it's very easy to dip an acro and the adults fall off if you're using a proper solution. But it's really the eggs that are the problem. They, they're, they're not, they don't react well to dips. In fact, you can't kill them with the dips. Um, so what you want to do is just cut right above that tissue line because the eggs are always just below the tissue line. Mm -hmm. It's a lot harder to do, say, with a mature colony where the tissues are wrapped around and you've got a lot of bone. So that, that's harder. But if you're only buying frags, it's very easy. And just chop that thing right off the frag plug. Don't even use the frag plug. I'll just never. take it out and glue tissue, coral tissue that has been dipped. And if you do that well, there's a very low likelihood that you're going to introduce a, a flatworm. A, I would never put a frag plug in my system because I don't want to see that weird disc growth yeah. on the rock that's going to drive me right. like the ADD is going to go off. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah. Not ADD, but uh, it's going to go off. OCD is going to go off. Uh, you can see that weird disc growth underneath there. Yeah. So uh, for that reason alone. But other than that one, I cut it out. I don't want anything that's on that plug in my tank. Yep. Because yep. there's nothing good on there. It could be weird little microscopic LGs that are going to become not microscopic real soon. Yeah. Uh, all kinds of different things. But I we actually dipped some macros in uh, like an 8 to 1 solution of peroxide. And I, this is your stress your corals out. So like know that you're you're probably gonna lose some color and stuff on these things but your goal is you know pests in this case like on corals that are you know hard to cut off all the mm -hmm. base you know yep. uh, it's a it's a colony and so in that case uh we actually saw the eggs in the solution so you dip it for just a matter of like we count to five swish it really really hard and then pull it out I don't think it'll get rid of all the eggs, man. But you, we definitely saw the eggs. Oh, the eggs were falling off. Yeah. From it. Yeah. Yeah, they were. They were in the bucket, man, for mm. sure. I wonder if that's due to the violent shaking or a combination of the peroxide working and softening it and the shaking. But deep inside these these larger colonies, I I don't. The adults <coughs> pop off immediately. We put, we put them under a microscope, yeah. and you could watch the the thing dissolve before mm. your eyes. Man, the little bubbles all over, it and just whoosh, yeah, gone. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Uh, the corals, some of them uh, browned out for sure immediately. Yeah. They're coming back, uh, but things like uh, the uh, euphilias of the world, the you know acans and the micromusas and the zoanthids. I mean, I've dipped these things in 100% peroxide 
you know, for two minutes, which is essentially a fresh water, super high oxidant yeah, to yeah. dip. And like tomorrow they look better than ever. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, why am I using tea tree oil? You know, and all the algae's gone. Yeah. Everything, man, is yeah. gone. Yeah. You know, like, uh, and so I, I, I think there's ways as our hobby to evolve it. Now, the problem is we have to get that evolved at scale. So I think of it here is we would have to go and get like, you know, 60 different euphilia frags and like, you know, dose five of them in various forms of things mm -hmm. and then, you know, track them. This is a big project. Yeah. Or sure. you guys got to do it at scale. Yeah. You know? But yep. and you have to be OK with like some of this stuff is not going to make it for the betterment of everybody that comes after. Yeah. You know, which well, this is what advances, is hard. this is what advances the hobby, you know, experimenting. There's there's people I don't know if you're aware of it, but that dose bleach into their tanks. Have you heard this one? I've been uh, doing it for years. You yeah. know, sodium hypochlorite, whatever mm -hmm. it's uh, you just dose a little bit, and in theory, it's supposed to sterilize the water column. Not enough to sh to harm or shock your corals, but enough where if you take a a, uh, a water sample and study the the bacteria that's laden in the water you'll see a lot less bacterial strains. And the theory anecdotally is that you're gonna reduce the odds of STN and RTN because you're sterilizing the water column, making it easier for the coral to not have to constantly fight off some of these bacteria. So to, to bring this back to the original point here of uh, how does nature balance these pests? The the reason that you have these things in the tank, the flatworms and all that stuff, is because they're in the ocean. Yeah. That's where we got them from, yep. right? Yep. But they weren't a problem there because there's all these reefs here. It's because there's all these wrasses, there's flow. And one of the things we've seen in our tanks too is the acros that are in the direct line of the pumps are the ones that don't have problems with uh, the acroid flatworms. It's the acros that are sheltered or mm. shaded uh, from the flow that develop the problems because nothing getting them off. Yeah. But in the ocean, man, currents and turbulence and predators and all yep. that stuff is, they all work in balance with each other. Yep. Some shrimp, a six line wrasse, you know, all the different things that are going to help to to naturally eradicate these things from our aquariums. So put those things in your tank to fight them. Yep. Uh, sometimes if you put them in there in the beginning, uh, you'll never even know you have this problem. Yeah. Uh, for instance, the, yep. the Mani eating Nudibronx. Yep. Right. So we had, you know, a plague proportion of those in the 160. We threw in a six line wrasse. Gone. Sure, oh. they're still in there, man, but you never yep. saw them again. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So what am I going to do? Like take them all out and quarantine them or whatever? Or like I throw a fish in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, throw in this yep. predator. Yep. So find balance in those things. The next thing here is, all right, what corals grow together uh, next to each other in nature? And how often do you come across a mixed reef in nature? So, yeah, I mean, w when you're diving, you will find areas, and these are usually the picture, the places you want to take pictures, where the acro field will meet the, meet the monty, and then you've got some nice sarcophyte and the leathers in there. So it does happen, but more likely, almost always, you find fields of one coral. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when they do coral studies and they look at, you know, a brand new reef, let's say a uh, a, a cyclone or something comes in and just devastates a reef. Now you've got this prime real estate that's perfect for settling. All the corals that are up current will settle on that reef. And you might have 500, 700, 900 species of corals for the first couple of years. And then over time, you'll peak out. I remember reading this one study. It was like a thousand different species within like one hectare. 
And then over time, they saw that it went down to 800 and then 600 as different, the faster growing corals were typically more aggressive. They can outcompete and sting the other ones. Over time, there was like 30 species left on this giant reef. It was Sarcophyton, it was the fastest growing Acropora, and the Montipora that just shaded and killed everything else until the next storm or natural event comes and wipes the playing field clean again. Um, so that's typically what you see is you're, you're seeing the fastest growing corals in that one area. But then when you go deeper, you know, you might see a little bit more of the mixed beds, euphilia mixed in with the deeper, uh, less light loving Acropora. So I think to get back to this question is when, when we go to a store and we wanna buy corals, we're not buying with that mindset at all. We're buying on what is attractive to us. Oh, I want one of these. It's like a buffet. I'll take two of these, three of these, but that's not at all how it typically is in, in nature. Yep. Their needs are so different. Okay, so mixed tank, number one most popular reef tank by far. Yeah. Not on purpose. It's because when you started shopping, you did just what you said. I don't know, that one looks cool. Yep. I want the yellow one, I want the green one, yep. I want the blue one, you yep. know? Yep. Uh, I don't know, that one's tissue's kinda cool. And, and, and you put it, you don't bring it back to the house and like, you know, put it in the place that like it would thrive in because you understand its biology. It's like, oh, well, I think it would look good right there. You yeah, know? Right. And like, I did that with the blasters in my first tank. Yeah. I mean, I kept trying it because there were like one of these corals that I really liked. And I just kept trying to put them in the place that they're the best viewing. Yeah. And like, it just didn't work out well yeah, for that animal. Yeah, yeah. I should have put it where actually it's kind of hard Maybe to view it, but it would have stayed yeah. alive. Yeah. Uh, and so this is important because everybody who's watching this, who's really into this understands, man, that in many, in almost every way, a good mixed tank is so much harder than an SPS tank or an LPS tank or anything where I'm actually, you know, looking for the biology of this certain group of animals. Yeah. Lighting requirements, you know, uh, flow requirements. You're always gonna, not, I don't like to speak in absolutes. It's, it's very common to have always like one coral or two corals not thriving, not doing so well. And that's kind of become the norm for, for a lot of people, but maybe it doesn't have to be like that. You know, I, I have a lot of friends in public aquariums, and there's always one species that's challenging in that, in that tank. And it's probably environmental rather than, you know, that coral is just because why can this public aquarium keep Syriatopora, but in this public aquarium, they just can't. Well, it's not the right setup. Maybe it's not the right flow or the right lighting or just something is missing. That is the piece that like, I hope really comes through in the 52 SE series is stuff doesn't just die, man. Yeah. Like, like that's the way that we've treated it. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't know, it just died. Like, and then like, I don't know, chromis just all die. I yeah. don't know, the anthers just all die. You can't uh, keep the school of chromis or, 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 or yes, you yeah, can, like, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, like you're just starving to death. Yeah. You know, uh, it's a super active fish that eats like all the time, man. Yep. And, and somebody told you that you should, it's okay to feed every other day once two pellets. I don't know, man. Just, it's gonna die, yep. you know, and hungry people fight with each other. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and just like we look at the morphology of corals, look at the swimming patterns of the fish. If the fish is swimming up on a reef and it's constantly doing this in all the videos and all the dives you've ever done, you watch Antheus, what are they doing? They're not sitting there, you know, they're mm. plucking stuff out of the water column constantly, constantly. This is food, this is food, this isn't food, I'll spit it out. This is food, this is food, this isn't food, I spit it out. We need to replicate that in our aquariums if you want these corals to thrive. I mean, these fish to thrive. Oh yeah, yeah, I got a whole school of them man, yeah. in my tank. So all they want to do is just feed. I feed every hour, man, on the hour during the day. And how do they do? They probably do well. They're growing, not yeah. dying. Right. You know, They're thriving. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, I just, right. I just had to think about the, you know, the animal and its needs. So uh, that's one of the things I like. The biggest 
advancement our hobby could have is not just think about all fish as a fish. Mm -hmm. They all eat the same thing. They yeah. all eat the same frequency. One giant like, brush stroke. It's, it's not like that. Yeah, that, that's like saying a horse and a cat's the same, yeah. dude. That's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. You know, they, they're just all right. just totally different. Or even a rabbit and a cat. They're like totally different animals. Two furry and, things that I've never really thought about before. Shouldn't they eat the same thing? No, not, not, not even all. close. Not yeah, even close. No. We'll get into that throughout the series, but like it is, if we could get that, and even within the corals, so like I was writing the LPS uh, uh, tank, all right, the flowy Stonies tank, yeah, uh, the other day, and you know, I ended up calling it a, you know, like more or less an LPS mixed tank, which is not a term that I've really used before or heard, because what I'm really doing is mixing you know, probably upwards of a hundred different types of coral. Uh, they all might be large polyp stony coral, but they all have very unique biology needs and they're gonna live in totally different areas. Mm -hmm. And if I think about it, that'll be way more successful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's just thinking about the difference between, again, the blasto and even something that looks a lot like a blasto, like the micromusas, yeah, yeah, right? Exactly. Uh, I mean, I can get a micromusa to live in a lot of different areas. I will tell you, they tend to look better in lower light areas. They tend to keep those like rainbow colors and stuff. Well, when you dive uh, in Australia, like near the Lord Howe Islands where, where they're from, you can get a colony and the rainbow is tucked underneath the rock and then the red and the, the, the more generic greens are facing the light. Same colony, just the color shifts almost to a rainbow as you get under less light. <laughs> I've had people say they throw acans in their sump and all of a sudden, a month or two later, they're rainbow. Mm -hmm. Yep. So like, I want I can understand that now. Yeah. Like now that you've heard that, would you ever take your super expensive rainbow and put it on the top? No. no. Never. Right. You would never. I, right. I want to maintain that color. So I got to find an area that serves its, not yeah. just its biology, but like the biology that I want it to display yeah. in a display tank. And it's a constant balance between, well, it might do well for three months. But what about three years? What about six years? You know, what is the test of time? What is, it, what is the measurement of time that really determines if that coral is happy and thriving? Just the fact that it's holding on or it lived for three months didn't mean you might have been doing it right. It just meant the coral was strong enough to adapt to hold on for that long. But we want these corals and fish to thrive. We want to create microenvironments within this, this tank that really caters to the needs of the animals that we're trying to keep. I don't know if the hobby's ready for this leap yet. But like the one that you just said is the one that will be the, the great leap forward, man. Like this would be the thing where like it'll transform all of it. If we could just get past the mentality of like it didn't kill it in the next 15 seconds. Yeah. I and mean, that's Drano. That Drano right. does that. Right. Uh, but like it died in a year. It means I was doing doing something wrong for an animal that would normally live decades. Yeah. You know. I was doing something wrong. I just wasn't doing it so wrong that it killed it immediately. Yeah. Now and it was like a slow decline. Yeah. It's really hard to think about it like in a coral that way. But like, what if my you know puppies were dying within twelve months of every time I was getting it? Am I doing something wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. I'm doing it. And it's it's really sad. Right. Uh, and know, it could have been something simple, just a slight diet switch. You know, uh, changing a diet or something, or not feeding just the right foods. You can keep it for a year or two, but it should live 10, 12, 14 years. So the, the, here's the balance of that equation. It's like, what I don't want to do is like, go out and shame everybody. Like, hey, you killed a coral, you know, shame on you. Right? And that's not the goal, yeah. No. What it is though, is if we can embrace that 
you know, I was probably doing something wrong and go looking for it. And as a hobby, we could learn what that thing is. Yeah. We can stop that for all the future people and be really, really proud of what we're doing. Yeah. You know, and so it's not about, you know, thinking you're a crappy reefer or any of that stuff. It's about how do we do it better? And in order to do it better, we have to accept our faults. Yeah. 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 We've, we've advanced the overall big picture of reef keeping. I mean, look at where it's come. We had wet dries on reef tanks in the eighties and very low power lights. And now we're take, we're breaking apart the different tools of success, the water chemistry, the flow, the dietary needs, the lighting. And within those, we're opening those up and we're understanding spectrums, intensity, par. And within even those, we're saying, well, how long do we want this intensity? At what depth do we want this intensity? So we're constantly trying to advance through understanding in finer and finer detail. And just like these, like if I can use the car analogy, to get a lot of horsepower out of a, out of a car, yet also be um, you know, uh, compliant with fuel standards and carbon emissions, takes constant refinements and refinements and refinements. But look at where we are today versus in the 80s. I mean, we're light years ahead. So, you know, when somebody comes into my store and they're like, is this alive? Is this a plant? You know, you want to almost laugh, but they don't know. These are adults that don't know that this coral is, is alive and it's not a plant and it's living. And so there's this huge education gap that we as stewards for our industry need to, you know, we need to step up and, and teach them and give them this crash course and then send them home with these animals. So you know, a lot of the people probably watching this are new at keeping aquariums and there's a wealth of information you got to take in. But I think the takeaways are understand the animals you want to keep, learn more about their needs before you go to the store to buy them or go to the store, fall in love with them and then go home and research them to make sure that you have the right setup or that you can afford the husbandry time that's involved, the right equipment, everything that goes in because they're pets at the end of the day, they really are. So I'm just going to own it. I don't know if the brand new reefer is ready for that, but the intermediate reefer who's going to do this for the second time absolutely yeah. is. Yeah. Right. And one of the things I, th I think about in terms of the conversation you're just sharing of like the little bits and stuff and then we learn and we get better and better is uh, I was talking to Jay over at Ecotech and at one point, you know, we were talking about how long it's kind of taken for LED lighting to catch up. Right. And what he said was interesting, which is like, Look, man, it took all of the lighting this long to catch up. Like, think about the first time you did a fluorescent bulb, how long it took to develop to the point that we all adopted the ATI, like blue plus model, yeah. right? Yeah. That was a decade, man. Yeah. And it's taken a decade for LEDs to catch up. But now that we know, you know, like if we adopt it as a whole, we could either use the you know spectrum and, uh, uh, analogy you shared. I could, you know, pick one that just does royal blue LEDs and cool whites and only hits chlorophyll C2, there's one really specific energy band, you know, the eye can't really see the difference all that well. Right, right. Uh, or I can pick one that balances violet with indigo and light blue light that very much mimics the type of light that would, you know, hit the ocean uh, and, or the, the energy band, the blue energy band, and then also, hits all the energy segments of chlorophyll A, C2, the carotenoids, perdenin, and like biologically makes sense. Why are we still doing this royal blue thing? You yep. know, like who, and, and why was anybody not like, like let's just abandon that, man. That, yeah. that, that yeah. way it should be done. Yeah. You yeah. know, like, we, we shouldn't have all. to talk about that anymore. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully out of this series, you'll get that. Uh, 
All right, this one's an interesting one too. This is an ocean. Now, this one's a pet peeve of mine. So come along for a ride here, because I'm glad you, you're, you brought this one up. Right? Different between the ocean is what is marine so what is marine snow and how can we use that knowledge in a reef tank i'm going to hold my tongue on the add-on piece i'm going to add on to this but go for it uh one of the biggest epiphanies for me the maybe the first time or the second time i went diving was wow there's so much silt or particulates or marine snow or reef snow whatever you want to call it in the in the ocean it very rarely, and you see, especially when the, when the sunlight shimmers through, you just see these fields of silt lines, and it's all this stuff in the water column. Well, these corals and, and animals are, are using it. They're preying on it. And by definition, marine snow is all the organic waste of the decaying plankton, the fish, anything that dies settles down to the bottom of the ocean, and it's called marine snow. And bacteria plankton actually encapsulate this marine snow and they start breaking it down. Well, corals, when you die, when you, when scientists have studied their gut, they're filled with bacteria. They're consuming the organics that are in the water column that are wrapped around by this bacteria. So that's a food source for these corals. Um, reef snow is on the reef. Marine snow is a general term for the organics that settle to the bottom of the ocean. And what doesn't get consumed forms the ooze that's on the bottom of, of the ocean floor. But what's the takeaway and how can we adapt and learn from this in our aquariums? Well, we love crystal clear water. We don't want to see dirt in our water or particles, so we love to attack it by adding more and more filters. With the advent of filter rolls, now we've got the tool to really filter all that out. But what are we really doing? Are we creating an environment that's pleasing for us to look at, or are we creating an environment that the corals will do well and thrive in? I think the hybrid approach is what's best, using a micron count or a micron size that doesn't filter all of it out, or maybe using it part-time or only on part of the water that's entering the filter, so some of it can escape and go up, or like the Triton method that doesn't employ any, any mechanical filtration. In fact, it allows for this process by allowing detritus to run through an algae bed where organics can get broken down and coated with bacteria. Some of it gets pulled out by the skimmer, but a lot of it goes back up into the tank. And successful trite method tanks often have this reef snow flowing through it, but the corals are thriving because they can eat 24 seven mm -hmm. or a lot at night when they're doing their prey capture. So, you know, don't over filter your aquarium. Try to replicate that which we see in the wild. Um, you know, th that, that's the takeaway, I, I think. This is, where this conversation evolves for me and like hopefully hopefully again 52 here uh se we see the like this conversation's happening it's just not happening enough at scale it's the difference between organic and inorganic nutrients yeah right so organic nutrients is the marine snow yeah. you know and like Really, eight million things, man. It could be fish turds. It could be the bacteria. It could be, Broken you down know, whatever, man. It could be fish or could be a yep. tree falls in, you know, whatever. Yep. Like just stuff that's breaking down and yep. can be consumed as energy. So uh, in our tanks, you, you see that, and we can create more of it, and there's foods and stuff that you can dose for it, some liquid, some of them powder, you know. Uh, but, like, what, uh, you know, WWC shared with me is, I mean, they're feeding on the hour every hour. Yeah because their solution is, you know, essentially fish waste, yeah. you know? And that's like, you think about how the chromis like live within the coral. 
you know, they're eating and then they're like pooping right there, yep, right? Yep. And it's, it's readily available. The waste is right? delivered to the coral heads. Okay, so that's where they're getting amino acids, fatty acids, the coral doesn't have to synthesize it on its own, saves yep. the energy from that. Uh, it is also getting sources of nitrogen and phosphorus, yep. you know, organic nutrients. And then there's this thing of inorganic nutrients, which is nitrate and phosphate. Yep. And there's been this shift in our hobby to like somehow think that tons of inorganic nutrient or, or inorganic being like really high levels of nitrate and phosphate are good for the tank or something like that's really unnatural. Yep. And I, I won't deny that like some tanks definitely survive that uh, and uh, maybe even thrive in it. That's far cry from the ocean. Yeah. Even the dirtiest lagoons don't really have high nitrogen and phosphorus. They just have high organic nutrients. Yep. And so we couldn't really do that in the past though. You would have, you know, if you dumped all those powder foods in there, you just have algae growing out of everywhere and your inorganic nutrients would be through the roof and just, it'd yep. look like trash. Yeah. Okay, but now like filtration has gotten so good. Like the the filter roller, man, yep. like Super too good. Yep. Uh, the uh, skimmers now, borderline too good. The refugium, show me what anybody that has an active refugium that has any nitrate and phosphate. They're like, any if game it's a solution. good size refugium that's that's running well, yeah. I, I found even small ones with high powered yeah. lights. I, like the problem would be no nitrate and phosphate. Yeah. But I don't really care about nitrate and phosphate at all, because in the ocean that doesn't like is like undetectable, right? And vast, vast, even some of the dirty lagoons. But what I do care is about is making sure that there's enough of the marine snow or mm -hmm. organic nutrients. Mm -hmm. And so you can look at that from a bunch of different ways. It could be from how often you feed. It can be from, you know, the fish that you have in there. It could be from using things like, you know, reef chili or whatever powdered one you want. Yep. Okay. Amino acids, you know, yep. I would later find out that I didn't know this, but like the well, the corals actually have an active transport method for catching the amino acids out of the water. Mm. They have a electrical charge on a, like on an opening that att attracts the amino acids out of the water. Mm. They capture it uh, and then they open up a valve essentially on the other side mm. and let it into drop the tissue. In. Right? They were designed to do this. And then when you use like that Red Sea stuff that because you can see it, it's like you know, like uh, like fluorescent, fluorescent yeah. right? You can see it's just coating the tissue of it. And now you know the uh, the active transport method of it's pulling it in. Yeah. Okay, well, I don't need to see it. So the ones we use here are the, the Brightwell one, uh, the coral amino. Okay. I'm just emulating the success of, uh, of Worldwide. Yep. They told me to use it. Yep. And then we did an experiment here and absolutely transformed them. So I'm sold. Yeah. Uh, there are other ones I'm sure you can yep. use, but uh, I mean, Julian's Acro Power. Acro Power. Oh, yeah, we love that. Yeah. See all the coral, the colors just within a week or so, the colors are just thicker and vibrant. That them. was the part I didn't anticipate. So what we did with the, the coral amino is that you had all these like corals that were unhealthy. Mm -hmm. And you had some of them you could almost see the skeleton through and the color, the color are crappy. All of a sudden, man, it just brought all of those corals to life. All of a sudden, the uh, tissue got puffy yeah. and healthy. And what I didn't expect is all the coral came, or the color came back to it. Yeah. And versus, you know, the A, B, the ones that weren't getting it, night and day. Nobody, like, see, if you saw that in real time, oh, like that little $10 bottle, uh, yeah. we're, I'll never not use you. Well, I remember Julian saying, you know, the, the, the corals can't synthesize some of these aminos. They have mm -hmm. to be added. So, you know, by adding them, now you're replicating what's a natural occurring thing in the wild. And the proof is in the pudding. 
Okay, so but by adding them though, you can add them via uh, meaty foods and fish poo yep. and stuff too. Yeah, yeah. So like if they're half digesting in little particles and they capture it, yep. and they either digest it right on their tissue or use their mouths or whatever. Some of the best reef tanks have a lot of fish. They're managing their nutrient export, but they're feeding very heavily. And the byproduct, like you said, of all those foods, whether it's nori, I mean, look how many trace elements in iron and iodine is in seaweed. And if you've got tangs and you're feeding them seaweed every day, well, what do you think happens to all those trace elements? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the fish are only using some of it for their biology, while the rest of it is going into the system. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, this is that piece where, like, I hear this all the time, where people are like, heavy in, heavy out, and the people that know, know, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's people that come in and argue with them, like, well, why would I want to pollute the tank with heavy in just to take it back out? No, man, I'm putting tons of organics, organic nutrition into the tank. Yeah. And then what I'm taking out is all the inorganic pollution, yeah. you know, being nitrate and phosphate. Yeah. Yeah, uh, like tons of nitrogen and phosphorus in the organic nutrition that is very natural and you'd find in the reef. And what I don't have is the pollution mm -hmm. of nitrate and phosphate. Uh, we'll be debating this one forever, man. Right, right. You'll because get... you can be successful a variety of ways. Exactly, yeah. But you got to find what works for you. Yeah. One of these certainly yeah. sounds right. Right. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. And then it has less pitfalls, less, less mines to step on, I think, too, if you can create a, uh, a husbandry or a, a goal or a system that doesn't employ very high nitrates and phosphates. Yeah. So it's worth saying though, that even like I'm using worldwide as an example here, but they run like 20 nitrate and yep. like way, way, like hundreds yeah, point, of thousands. Point one phosphates and Low uh, phosphate. 10 to 15 uh, nitrate. So we what, try to keep it at that 100 to one ratio. So that is actually like kind of hard to do without chemicals mm -hmm. because most of the time when you're adding food, now this is a shooting from the hip here, like it, it depends on the food that you're adding, but it's probably not super far away from this. When you put food in, it's actually adding it around 10 to one, especially if it's sea-based uh, mm -hmm, foods. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you're adding, you know, for every one nitrate, you're adding 0.1 phosphate. Mm -hmm. So if I got to 20 nitrate out of it, I'd be at like two phosphate, yeah. two, yeah. Yeah. not point two. Right. Uh, yeah. right. Uh, and so you end up, if you want to allow the nitrate to get that high and we keep that, now I'm running yeah. GFO, I'm running lanthium chloride, I'm running, uh, like MaxSpec has a resin that we've been using pretty yeah. successfully lately. But I had to use all these like chemicals. But if I run a refugium, yeah. it just keeps both like really yeah. low. I mean, yeah. you know, potentially zero, zero. But what I wouldn't want to do is have zero, zero, you know, nitrate and phosphate, and then also use the paper. Okay. Yep. You know, the, yep. use the roller. Yeah, you'll, you'll strip it right out. Zero organic yep. and zero inorganic nutrients. Yep. Bad news for a coral tank. Yep, yep. Some of the best tanks I've seen run these very low, low levels of nitrogen and phosphorus, but you're riding a razor's edge. So as a coral farmer, you know, we're relying on different staff, the very safe, measurement seems to be, you know, five to 15 ppm's nitrate, very stable. Um, you want that nutrition in the water, especially with the higher lights. So in this series, you're actually gonna see this thing where we're gonna see just consistent throughout the whole series. We're gonna approach filtration, like you're gonna approach nutrition intentionally. We're gonna mm -hmm. put nutrition in here in a very intentional manner. Mm -hmm. And then we're gonna remove it so it doesn't pollute the water. Mm -hmm. And the method we're calling is SPDID. Mm -hmm. So I wanna suspend it with flow uh, I, I want to remove the dissolved organics, uh, not always, 
uh, I wanted to remove the uh, or the particulate organics, the dissolved organics, the inorganic uh, nutrients, uh, and then dilution through mm -hmm. water changes. But what you won't see is I'm going to apply that universally to all tanks. Mm -hmm. But like something like the Predator tank, I don't need nutrients in there. Nutrients is going to serve sure. growing algae sure. and slimes and stuff. So yeah. I'm going to use all of them. I want the lowest maintenance tank possible. That's part of the reason I set this tank up that way. It's like yep. it's fish only. I just like, I don't, my life, get work life counts. Yeah. Right. So I'm going to get all of that out. Right. And there's a lot of food going in there. Like this eel is going to have a big turd. Sure. You know, like, I mean, <laughs> you won't think of it eating that frequently, but it's eating a lot more than one right. cube of mice right. today, effectively. Right. 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 Okay. So like, I want to get all of that out. So I'm going to do all of it. But on something like the Chromis tank, nope, I'm not running paper. Uh, I'm not going to run the roller or a filter sock or anything. I actually want all of that uh, organics in there. Yeah. But I'm certainly running the skimmer and I'm certainly running the refugium. Yep. Yeah. So thinking about it more in terms of do I need a skimmer? Do I need that? The biology, biology of the animal and the goal of what you might even yeah. have. Yeah. We see uh, in freshwater aquariums, which I'm also very into, is these biotope aquariums. When you're replicating the plants, the lighting, the driftwood, the rocks, and the fish of a certain location. If you if you go back to like Takashi Amano with the Nature Aquarium days, he was known to go to different areas and photograph different locales of, of lakes and the juxtaposition of the waterfall with this rock and this plant and the way the light hit it at 4 p.m. And he would recreate that in his studio, which I, I was fortunate enough to visit. We never really, had, well, we haven't adopted that biotope recreation of a specific locale in reef aquaria that much. I see it happening. I see this series. I see Ryan talking about it. Everyone's more aware of it. We can do more than just this mixed garden reef. And what that entails is picking your animals, picking your environment, picking the lighting, and then fine-tuning your filtration to support the, the best chance of success for those, for those needs. You ready for blasphemy? Yeah. I mean, just total, complete blasphemy. Yeah. Uh, Than said it to me, which is, we could learn something from freshwater. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And like, dude, in freshwater, you pick a theme, you pick an animal you want to surround that theme yep. around, and then you create this like very intentional look and you hard commit to it. Yeah. It's not just in collection of animals in there. Right. Yeah. Which is like, we've all seen that. We've all yep. done it a hundred yep. times. Yep. Right. What's next? Yep. And I hear this yep. out of people all the time. I go to shows all the time. It's like, what's next? You know, I've done it all. I've done the SPS tank. I've done the LPS tank, which are all like, you know, basically just collection tanks. Yep. yep. All right. Well, what's next? And the, the next, leaf ledge, the NPS, you know. Yeah. It's, yeah. It could be like another species. It could yeah. be another look. Like, so like with the Twilight Predator t uh, tank, it's not just a predator tank. We were looking for something very specific, like a actual look yeah. to this tank. I want it to have this spooky look. We're using black sand for a reason, yeah. you know? It, it, it needs to, when, you, when somebody comes into your house, they have to just like, you know, for lack of better words, bypass your wife and go right to like, what is that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it comes into the conversation of what, what people are gonna do what they want. And I think a lot of people are gonna still gravitate to the mixed reef because it offers them the diversity, the color, the nuances, the unpredictability, that, oh, I can just keep adding all this random stuff. And so I don't think that's ever gonna go away, but 
it would be awesome to have this conversation piece where this is a locale from this reef, kind of like a public aquarium. Might be a little bit more boring because there's not as many angles, there's not as many things happening. It's like a snapshot of a, of a locale, but I think it lends itself to a, a better conversation, a better story, and we can probably care for the animals better. And it really comes down to your individual decision. You know, we're not telling you what to, what to buy and how to, you know, it's your money, it's your tank, you have to look at it and there's no right or wrong. But we want to tell people that there's so much more than just a mixed garden reef. Like you can go to the left, you can go to the right, you can recreate what they're doing on a larger scale in public aquariums. It requires inspiration. Yeah. Right, because it's not good enough to say, go do some more fun stuff. Yeah. Like show me. Yeah. You know, uh, right. and, so, and show me how to do it. You know, yeah. I had, after I shared that with uh, like my little circle of friends, uh, like Twilight Predator, I shared the video and they're all like, wow, man, I never even thought of doing something like that. Right. They're like, I want to do that. And it was like, I just needed somebody to show me. Like in my life, like balance, so uh, like I, this seems like it would actually fit and it's cool. And like one of them literally the next day, man, went out and set up a frogfish tank. Ah. You know, awesome. like it was yep. just the inspiration, man, yep. that you need. And they're to easier to maintain because everything is geared for that specific biotope, for mm -hmm. that setup. Yeah. Well, it, uh, if you do it that way, the decisions become so obvious every yeah. time you enter something. Yeah. You know, and like, so some of the comments you saw in the first video is like, that's the most over-engineered tank known to man. Like, like I hear what you're saying because we're putting way more thought into yeah. it than anybody else has like really put thought into it. But like, isn't that the evolution here? Right. You know, isn't it like, how don't we want to think about it more? And you're like, yeah, there's lots of gear and stuff in there, man, but you don't need all the gear. Pick the things that speak to you, yeah. leave the rest, yep. you know? And like, yeah, I used a Vortec down here, man, but you could use a double, like, any pump you want, man. Yep. Uh, yep. Like, it's like, think about how all of this stuff comes together and think about the biology. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it is over-engineered, but no, I'm creating a biotope for an animal that I'm not okay with dying in 12 months. Yep. Yeah. You know, I want it to be around for a long time. Yeah, and if you can afford and if you can justify the, to 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 put everything you can to sustain or or to uh, to give it the be best chance of success, why not? Why not? But your budget, you know, obviously determines what equipment you can go with. Are you ready for the good news? Yeah. Yeah, there's more of this to come. Uh Joe is actually here for a whole bunch of episodes and they're going to be in the 52 playlist and you're going to see it right here.